Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen with David Gura. Daily, we bring you insight from the best of economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. Morning on a Thursday, the 24th of August. This is Bloomberg Surveillance on Bloomberg Radio. David Gray in New York. Francine Lockwell with me in London. Tom Keene's summer vacation continues. Whereabouts unknown. Mr. Keene will see him back here on Tuesday of next week. Central bank policymakers have made their pilgrimage to northwestern Wyoming for the Kansas City Fed's annual economic policy symposium. We'll hear from the host of that event. Just a little later this hour, our colleague Michael McKee sits down with Esther George for a wide-ranging conversation on monetary policy. So I Francine Lockwood joins me uh, in London and uh, Ron Temple with me here in our Bloomberg 1130 studios uh, in New York. We just uh, got off television with him, had some great conversations. Uh, and let's circle back to monetary policy uh, if we could, uh, I started off on TV asking you what you're going to be listening for from uh, from Jackson Hole. Uh, do you expect the conversation here largely to center on inflation? This is something that uh, each of these banks is worrying about in its own specific way. Now, I do think there will be quite a bit of conversation around inflation. I do think, obviously, Janet Yellen's speech, I believe, is going to be about financial stability. Um, so I, it, the ultimate crux of the discussion should be around inflation and should be understanding what is structurally changed versus cyclical. Um, so, as I, you know, I, I think one of the things we've done a lot of work here on is understanding the Phillips curve, i.e., the relationship between unemployment and wage growth. Understanding why, even though unemployment has declined so far, that wage growth has not accelerated more. It's a phenomenon across the U.S., Germany, and Japan. So, I think there'll be a lot of conversation around topics like that and transitory imp- imp- factors affecting inflation. Hi, Ron. It's Francine from London. Do you believe that we still need to look at the Phillips curve, or is it broken? Will it come back? It's hard to answer that with a high degree of confidence. My my view right now is that we should rely on the Phillips curve, and my base case assumption in the next one to two years is that it will reassert itself. Now, we've done some interesting analysis here, by the way. Typically, the Phillips curve is looked at at the U3, i.e. the the headline unemployment rate relative to wage growth. But if you use the U6, which is what people describe as the underemployment rate, i.e. people who are working part-time but wish they could work full-time or they're uh, discouraged workers, um, there's actually a much higher correlation between that U6 and the wage growth. And I do think as the U6 or the underemployment rate continues to decline, we should see the Phillips curve reassert itself in the U.S. over the next couple of years. Yeah, I like that U3, U6. I think it was uh, Tom's chart of the year a couple of <laughs> weeks ago. <laughs> Famous um, chart Ron, of the year, yes. If you, look, if you look at Jackson Hole, and uh, w- we had you on TV, and you basically believe that the policy mistake would come from the Fed or anyone else hiking too soon because they need to wait, in your eyes, for inflation to really come through. But where will the biggest policy mistake come from? Is it BOJ? Is it Fed? Mm. Is it BOE or ECB? Mm. I mean, that stuff, it does seem, it, let's, let's talk about probability versus severity. So in terms of the probability, the highest probability of a mistake, I would have to say it still seems to be the Fed, because the Fed is taking a very hawkish line in terms of their commentary that they make in the speeches. Um, it, it does seem that there's been a, an extreme level of discomfort with the, um, the unprecedented monetary policy measures they had to take during the crisis, and there's an eagerness to get out of those. Now, I think that would be the Fed would be well advised to pull back a bit and allow their policies to have a chance to succeed. I would argue, frankly, they could have been more aggressive than they were. Um, in terms of the severity of mistake, I think if the BOJ were to surprise markets by starting to normalize early, that would be an incredibly damaging uh, factor. I also note, obviously, the news you've reported this morning about business encouraging Abe to raise taxes, I think would be a major mistake in Japan. We we finally got six quarters of GDP growth. Let's not nip this recovery in the bud. Ron Temple with us. He's the co-head of multi-asset investment. 
investment, Lazard Asset Management, just on a, the, the broader subject of monetary policy and how that dovetails with, with the markets. To what degree is it the, the, the biggest influencer of where markets are right now? You know, that's, that's one of the good news items in the last, say, six to nine months, well, actually nine to 12 months, uh-huh. is that monetary policy has receded a bit in terms of the background. If I look back over the last several years, there were periods of time where it felt like monetary policy was the singular focus of markets. And I do think, you know, one, one piece of evidence of that is correlations within the market and across markets have actually declined quite a bit. Um, so I think that's been quite positive, especially for firms like ourselves that are really focused on security selection, um, is an opportunity to see differentiation between companies that win and lose based on the economy, not just what the Fed or the ECB or BOJ do. So I think it has receded somewhat, but it's still very important in that it could undermine the, un- the economic recovery or that synchronized global growth we see right now. A friend and I talked to Chris Sims from Princeton uh, yesterday, the Nobel laureate, about uh, the handoff between monetary policy to fiscal policy and how that's been fumbled a little bit here in the U.S., I think you could say. Uh, how long do you, do you give that to, to work? In other words, we've heard the clarion call for so long that there needs to be that shift take place here uh, in the U.S., and uh, it seemed like there was the opportunity for it to happen, at least in the immediate aftermath of the, the presidential election. Uh, do you, have, you, have, you, have you given up on that happening yet? Well, I mean, to, to be fair, I, I think that the real disappointment is that fiscal policy should, should have been much more aggressive back in 2008 and 2009. I mean, that's, that's when we were basically falling into the abyss. Uh, we did actually have a $787 billion fiscal stimulus package in the U.S., but it's easy to forget that only a small part of that, I believe something on the order of $80 billion, was infrastructure. Um, I could argue you should have had $500 billion to $800 billion of infrastructure alone. Um, so I, I do think you know that was the time for major fiscal stimulus. Uh, at this point in the cycle, I think fiscal stimulus is less necessary, but what we do still need is investment to increase the long-term productivity of this economy through infrastructure, through job training for people who have been displaced by trade. Um, and basically, we also need tax reform to basically give businesses confidence in how they should invest. What's pricing at the moment, Ron, if anything? What's pressing? Pri- uh, no, price, priced in. Priced oh, in priced markets. in? I think very little is priced in in terms of policy change. I think the markets have basically reached the conclusion that – you know, that we discussed some good ideas, some frankly bad ideas, uh, but very few of those ideas will be implemented because there's not the organization in the White House um, and collaboration between the White House and the Congress to get things done. Right. So if you do see, for example, some tax reform because the Trump administration says they need to do it ASAP to kind of get away from all the controversies, that would play in on equities but also affect treasuries or not? It should affect both. I mean, let's be very clear, too, in terms of semantics. I mean, early on we talked, and I actually just used the term tax reform. Typically, tax reform is intended to mean revenue neutral, i.e. you cut some tax rates, streamline the tax code, but find ways to replace that revenue. I think the probability of that is less than 5% at this point. I think what we're really talking about right now is tax cuts, which will increase the deficit and should have a a long-term, arguable, depending on the structure of the tax cuts, a negative implication for bond prices and, i.e., higher yields because of the credit quality of the sovereign. Um, so we'll see how that plays out. But the, I, even if President Trump does come out and say, I want tax cuts right now, leadership is not a tweet. Leadership is actually delineating what kind of tax cuts, what form, and then actually engaging with Congress effectively on a sustained basis to make sure it happens. And so far, that's really been missing in the policy action. I was struck, Ron, reading your, your research, how optimistic you are about the, the global economy generally. Given that, where do you see the, the most opportunity now? I mean, it, it's 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 I think emerging markets, again, still have the best opportunity, partly because they are basically just coming off the bottom in terms of commodity price stabilization and worries around Fed policy and the valuations, importantly, are 
although above historical levels, not as far above as, say, Europe and the U.S., just give you a sense of magnitude, relative to the Ford median, uh, the, the median Ford PE over the last 10 years, emerging markets is one and a half PE multiples rich. Europe is about 2.7 rich, and the U.S. is three and a half multiples rich. So you are paying a premium to history, but not as much. And earnings, arguably, are still depressed in these countries. So I like the U.S. and I like European equities, but I think EM probably offers a better, say, three-year view than those developed economies. Quick bite, if I could uh, get you to talk about China a little bit as well. We've been following news about uh, the, co- the country trying to reduce its capital uh, outflows. How does that how does that change the, the level of opportunity there for you? Yeah, China's I, obviously. I think for any foreigner visiting China and investigating China, it, it is more opaque than the say European, U.S., Japanese economies. I do think China's done a good job of stimulating growth in the short term and early 2016 with credit and fiscal stimulus. Um, but I do think the biggest challenge facing China is the ever accumulating pile of corporate debt. Um, we've seen corporate debt go from 138 percent of GDP in 2011 to 198 percent in 2016. That basically implies a 118 percent increase in corporate debt in four years. And so China needs to basically wean itself from the the heroin of debt and basically continue rebalancing its economy. Now, to be fair to them, they've done a good job of moving more to services, but but it's going to be a challenge. And as it relates to capital flows, I think the biggest issue in capital flows is controlling the boom-bust cycle in real estate. Um, every time we have a boom in real estate and the proceeding follows to a bust, we see capital flows increase. And I think the Chinese authorities have recognized mm-hmm. that. Ron, thank you so much. Ron Temple there. What a way with words. He is <laughs> Lazar Asset Management Managing Director. In the meantime, the focus is, of course, a turning, turning on Jackson Hole and the central bankers meeting there. The dollar strengthening stocks in Europe advancing. David Gura here in New York, Francine London, uh, Francine Lockwa in London, as I now four weeks into the shift begin to uh, botch things like that. Francine, great like job. I think it's great. Francine London will make I the change. I call you David Washington. There you go. Perfect. I want to flag some news here out of uh, Venezuela, Washington and Venezuela. Washington's levied some sanctions on individuals related to Venezuela. They're now reportedly considering uh, blocking trades of Venezuelan-held dollar-denominated notes sold by the government and the state-run oil company. Here to talk about this with us is uh, Shannon O'Neill. She's a senior fellow at the Council on Foreign Relations. And uh, as we get into this, I'm curious, this is a country that has not defaulted on its debt, despite the, the worsening political and economic situation there. There seems to be a, uh, a, a real sense of, of uh, strength or dedication here to not defaulting. How likely is that to continue, do you think? Well, we have seen that. They have chosen to pay their interest and some principal over paying for basic food and medicine and the like, especially as oil prices have come down. There's less cash flowing around Venezuela. They've chosen to pay creditors and, and not feed their people. And they will continue to do that, I think, as long as they can. The question is, they've been running down their reserves, they've been selling off assets, they've been trying to get money from Russia and China other places, and they're f- coming to the point where there's really nowhere else to go for money. And particularly if the United States would put sanctions on and make it harder for them in financial markets or harder for them to sell their oil around the world, it would be very difficult to continue servicing this debt. I want to ask you about rhetoric. I spent some time in Bolivia in the early 2000s, and strong rhetoric from the U.S. had a very positive effect, as I heard it, uh, among the, the, the rhetoric that you would hear domestically that, that could be spun uh, kind of counterintuitively in, in a positive way in, in that country. Here we see uh, strengthened, harsher rhetoric from the U.S., uh, with regard to Venezuela, uh, we're hearing the word dictatorship and dictator used now regularly by senior administration uh, officials. What's the effect of that been here uh, on, on the situation in Venezuela domestically? Well, it looks like it may be providing Maduro, the president of Venezuela, a bit of a lifeline. Mm-hmm. 
Um, he has, and those before him, have created all by themselves a huge humanitarian and financial and economic crisis that's happening, a uh, real catastrophe that is all of their own making. But when you, the United States steps in and with this kind of rhetoric or perhaps even moving further into sanctions and the like, it gives them an excuse. It gives them an outside enemy. And while we in the United States tend to look to the present and the future, Latin American countries really focus often on the past, on history. And the, what they see is sort of imperialism in the United States intervening in the region. So there is this reflex action against this tough talk. All right. What's the best thing to do here, Shannon? I mean, you see that there's a possible ban also on certain trades, but then that would also hurt off or cut off a lifeline to you know, a country which is heavily indebted. There is a real challenge for the United States. As much as they want to do something tough on Venezuela as democracy ends there, as there's a crackdown on the opposition, it's hard to know what to do. And really the most successful policies, I would say, would be ones that bring other Latin American nations in to condemn this regime. And there are many options out there. There are a lot of presidents who have stepped up, whether Mauricio Macri in Argentina, Peña Nieto in Mexico, the president of Peru, of Chile. Many of these see the end of democracy there as a huge problem for the region. So there are allies there, but tough unilateral actions on the United States will drive them away rather than bring them together. I mean, it seems that the president has not really ruled out a military option in Venezuela. What does that mean for for the country? He did mention that, though this Department of Defense walked back pretty quickly from what that might mean. Um, and it's hard to imagine even what that would look like, um, some sort of military intervention there. I think one thing you might see is particularly the humanitarian crisis deepens. You could imagine the United States government, in part the Department of Defense, helping with some of that movement of people that are flooding today already into Colombia, Brazil, and other countries nearby. Just lastly here in the, the minute we have left with you, let me ask you about the status of the NAFTA renegotiation efforts. We had the first round of those meetings here over the last week or so. Uh, what are you watching? What are you listening for as, as they get underway? I gather they, they meet again on September the 1st for the next round. They have decided a lightning round of renegotiations here and, and meetings to try to change NAFTA to update NAFTA. And so what I'm watching is, does that continue? Do they really think they can end this by the end of the year or beginning of 2018? If they stick to that schedule, then I wouldn't expect big changes to NAFTA, or the changes I would expect would be the ones that have already been negotiated in TPP, the Trans-Pacific Partnership. Shannon, great to speak with you. Thanks for uh, thanks for coming in. Shannon O'Neill from the Council on Foreign Relations who joined us here on Bloomberg Surveillance on Bloomberg Radio, Bloomberg Television as well. You can check out her interview there on Bloomberg.com or on the Bloomberg uh, Terminal. This is the 41st Economic Symposium for the Kansas City Fed here in Jackson Hole. And Esther George, the president of the Kansas City Fed, is the host. And you've been here for all of them. No, not really. <laughs> Neither have I. This has changed significantly over the years. The TV presence, the focus on it. Janet Yellen is speaking on Friday. Mario Draghi is speaking on Friday. Global Wall Street on the edge of their chairs, expecting them to make news. But that's not what this was designed to no. do. No, the, the purpose of the conference is really to dig into issues uh, that we think matter to central banking, matter to monetary policy, and ultimately matter to the real economy. And so you want people on the program that have, are thoughtful about those issues, that can debate those issues, bring different perspectives to them. And that's really our goal. 
every year is to try to have a relevant topic that will add to our understanding of these issues. Well, the relevant topic for people on Wall Street lately has been inflation. So let's talk about that a little bit. Uh, You've long argued in favor of higher rates to head off inflation. And people have said Esther George is wrong because there's no inflation. What if we flip that argument on its head and say you've raised rates and there's no inflation? Have you accomplished what you set out to do? So when I think about inflation, Mike, I think about our mandate, which is price stability. And relative to an economy that's growing at 2% and is adding jobs, I think we're in a pretty good place. And we still have very accommodative monetary policy. So that tells me we should begin to, as we've indicated, gradually removing that accommodation. As long as the outlook supports that we are moving in the right direction. And I think we are. So that suggests you are in favor of yet another rate move this year, as the dot plot would indicate. So that was my last forecast. And each time we put those together is a new opportunity to look at the data. So I'll be looking at the data in the next few weeks as we get ready for the September meeting and see whether that still makes sense. Based on what I've seen today, I think there's still opportunity to do that. So by the end of the year, not necessarily in September. No, not necessarily. I don't pick a meeting. And I don't consider that rate path and those projections a commitment. So I think it is a general sense of where rates should go. Well, to what extent is inflation a lagging indicator? It's something Fed officials have argued for a long time. In other words, is the Phillips curve broken or is Nehru lower than it has been in in the past? What's happened to inflation? Well, I don't know that I'm going to have a good answer for you there because many people are studying that very issue. The things I look at when I look at inflation, so goods... The price of goods, that's been falling. Maybe that's due to technology. There are a number of factors that I think may be pressing down. When you look at services, which is two-thirds of the economy, you see that those rates are actually staying at 2% and higher. So in the context of the economy we have today, that's why I think you have to be careful getting too focused on a point estimate as opposed to the broader trends that you see and the expectations that are out there. Well, speaking of expectations, with inflation not rising and you've had five months of disappointments in the CPI, market expectations are falling. Is that a problem for a Fed that has always said expectations are key to keeping prices stable? So I think you have to pay very careful attention to that, and I would include myself there. But again, you have to know... Uh, what drives those expectations. And that's the challenge, is constantly looking at what's going on in the economy, what might be reflected in those numbers, as opposed to overreacting to uh, some specific point estimate that you see. You do have new forecasts for growth and inflation and unemployment coming out in September. How have yours changed or have they changed at all as the economies evolve? Well, in my own case, unemployment has come down faster. Uh, than some of my projections. Um, Inflation has stayed lower on the whole, uh, I think, over this period. And the economy did not take off, I think, as many of us hoped it would. But it's been coming in at a 2% pretty steady rate of growth. So this month marks the 98th consecutive month of growth in our economy. And I think it gives us a better sense as we look forward that that might be what we expect. Do you have any reason to mark up or mark down your growth forecast? So not at this point. I'm encouraged that the global economy um, is looking better and you see growth beginning to pick up. Um, In terms of domestic policies that might have posed an upside, 
uh, to whether it's infrastructure spending, tax reform, and other things. I've always taken a wait-and-see approach on that, and I'll continue to do that. The Open Market Committee has said that uh, it still expects inflation to hit the 2% target, maybe not as soon as we thought. But are you ready to throw in the towel? I mean, at, at what point do you say this is not happening, there's something wrong with our models? Well, there may, in fact, be something wrong with the models. Uh, I don't know. I think that continues to be a question that many economists are asking. But I also know that what we need to look to is the long run. So whether we hit 2% on the nose um, is less important to me than understanding how the economy is doing more generally. And I think today the price level has continued to grow. The rate of change has bounced around. And right now it continues to uh, run below 2%. That doesn't concern me about the health of the economy, though. Been a lot of talk about financial stability. Janet Yellen is going to speak on it on Friday. With financial conditions easing, even though you've raised rates, and stock prices continuing to rise to new records, is that a reason to continue raising interest rates? Do you have a concern about uh, the level of asset prices? Well, I think... The QE that was undertaken over the last 10 years uh, aimed at boosting asset values. So when you see that we've made four rate moves since December of 2015 and financial conditions have eased, uh, that I think points to the idea that we need to adjust the balance sheet. That's a tool we haven't had experience with, and so I think that's an important next step to be looking at that. I want to ask you about the balance sheet, but let me just quickly follow that and ask you if investors are too complacent these days. I don't know. I think you'll have to see uh, where that comes out. But as I said, when you set conditions that have had easy monetary policy for a long time, the incentives to reach for yield, uh, the committee signals that it'll be gradual, could feed into that. And um, I watch those uh, asset values carefully, but I'm not sure there's anything you can target uh, specifically when it comes to setting policy. All right, the balance sheet taper Wall Street is betting it's September that you're going to announce it. Uh, Any reason that they would be wrong from your point of view? Well, I've been in favor of doing this uh, for some time, and I think uh, the estimates suggest that the economy's in a good place to begin doing that. So I'll look forward to the discussion in September about uh, that opportunity. Do you have any estimate of the impact on financial markets from that, particularly yields, and whether or not it will amount to a a de facto tightening. Yeah, I've seen various estimates, and it's hard to know, again, because we don't have experience doing this. You would expect, because of the duration of these assets, that as you begin to shrink that balance sheet, um, I hope it does get reflected in the yield curve. How sensitive will you be to market reactions to the tapering process? Well, I think we're always taking that into account. Um, whether it alters the path of policy, I think, is a broader discussion about what else we see going on. Do you think asset prices deflate as you shrink the balance sheet in the way that they inflated when you blew up the balance sheet? I don't know. I've heard various views on that, too. And again, I wish I had some experience to draw on here. Um, What I know is the aim was to boost asset values. I think we've seen that. Um, Whether that ends up having uh, a symmetric reaction on the other side, I think we have to wait and see. But I think, again, the very gradual approach that's being taken there gives the committee time um, and has given markets time to understand where that balance sheet is headed. The one thing you haven't told investors is how big 
the balance sheet is ultimately going to be, and that'll depend on what monetary policy system you end up using. Are you in favor of staying with the current system of uh, interest on excess reserves and repos, or would you go back to uh, strictly setting a Fed funds target? Well, it's appealing to go back because we know how that looks, but we are where we are today, and I think it makes sense to judge as we move forward how we see the economy unfold. What you don't know is you could get hit with a shock at any time. You'll have another set of decisions to make. So the ultimate operating framework is not something the committee has um, opined on yet. It's talked about it. Um, there's been analysis uh, underway, but I think for now, we have to use IOER. We have to use uh, the overnight reverse repo uh, tools as part of how we begin to normalize policy. As part of the reasoning for why you want to do this now and for why you want to continue raising rates, is it because you need some cushion, you need some tools should the economy turn down? Well, I think that would be um, obviously attractive when you think about the next downturn, but I wouldn't say it's my primary motivation. Because what you're trying to do is make sure that the economy is going to benefit in the ability to grow in a sustained fashion. So the motivation is, where is unemployment? How is inflation performing? And do those suggest you need to begin to have interest rates reflect that? That's my motivation. Uh, whether it gives us all the ammunition we need at the time we next need to decide that would be um, an added benefit. I know you got to run, but let me ask you just quickly about this conference. Uh, the theme is creating a dynamic economy. What would Esther George do? What's the most important thing to do going forward to create a dynamic economy? Well, we've seen in our own economy, and you see this around the world, changes that are happening because of technology, because of demographics, many things, and some of those will be talked here at this conference. Uh, what you want is sustainable growth that has broad effects uh, for the economies that you're in. And as the world changes because of some of these factors, uh, policies have to change. And that's really what we're after with this conference is try to bring more insight to where are those opportunities? How might uh, policymakers think about that going forward? So. Finally, just one last quick question. I know you can't incorporate what's happening in Washington into your forecast because nobody knows what's happening in Washington. But do you worry about a debt ceiling crisis? Well, we've had experience with this over the last few years, and we know it creates uncertainty, as it did a few years ago. It can affect the real economy. Uh, but I'm hopeful that um, our policymakers can come to terms with that and uh, take actions that will benefit uh, the economy going forward. I mentioned Tim Pawlenty joins us now, the former governor of the state of Minnesota, CEO of the Financial Services Roundtable. He's in our Bloomberg 99.1 studios in Washington, D.C. And I want to start by just asking you to take stock of the last week plus, as we all have been doing. We certainly watched what unfolded in Charlottesville, Virginia, heard the rhetoric surrounding that, heard the response to it from politicians, including the president, listened to President Trump as he spoke in Arizona uh, the day before yesterday in Reno last night with a, a different sort of message. Uh, what's your what's your sense of where things stand politically uh, in this country? Obviously, you're focused now on uh, largely on, on policymaking in Washington, D.C. How much has the politics distracted from the policy? 
Well, that's a really good question, David, and good morning to you and to Francine. I always like to remind people that policy follows politics, and politics reflects culture. And I don't mean by that ethnic culture. I mean political culture. So your question, I think, is spot on to try to assess and analyze where we are in terms of political culture because ultimately that leads to policy. I think obviously the country is divided. The country is in many ways anxious, and the events of the last few weeks with the president that you just chronicled through each of those events represents different things, obviously. His speech to the veterans group was very different than his speech in Arizona, which, of course, was uh, related in some ways to some of the tone and unfortunate content that he put out post-Charlottesville. And so I think it's it's a pause moment in Washington because of the August recess, but I think it's also a chance for people to step back and say, with the debt ceiling coming, with the prospect of tax reform coming, with the prospects of the president's new chief of staff maybe having a positive influence on how the White House operates, perhaps this could be a moment where you could hope for some improvement coming into the fall. What can a group like yours do to encourage that? Um, I spoke with Tim Phillips, the, the president of Americans for Prosperity, a few weeks back, and he talked about his, his interest here in getting the administration and lawmakers to focus on tax reform uh, exclusively. He's trying to interface with lawmakers in the White House to make that uh, happen. We hear about the intractability of this White House. Of course, John Kelly coming in to, to change how things are, are run there. How much influence does a group like yours have on the way things are run in the Washington of today? Well, we don't influence things at a macro level, but I do think we can at least contribute directionally to the discussion by bringing information forward and a sense of urgency and accountability. So tax reform, I think, is a jobs bill. And all the politicians, right and left, always like to say, I'm for the working people, I'm for middle America, I want to get the economy moving, and particularly I want to grow good-paying jobs. And so if you believe all of that, then it's not a, a big leap get to convince them that tax reform could help ignite the economy and get GDP hopefully moving from its anemic level to something better. Um, Tim, how do you do that? I mean, how do you have to get on? Who do you have to get on side actually to to make sure that I guess the uh, you know we move away from the controversy and actually get something done? Yeah, really, it, it's the Republicans obviously control both the House and the Senate, so I don't want to say it's easy because it obviously isn't. But they, it's fully within their control if they use this process called reconciliation, where they only need fifty-one votes in the Senate. The Republicans, if they want to, can pass with Republican votes only a tax bill. And tax reform has been the political holy grail for much of the Republican Party for a generation. And so it is in alignment with what they've been asked to do, what they ran on. It's also good policy, by the way. So candidly, if you just look at it from a macro level perspective, it shouldn't be that hard. Of course it is. Right. <laughs> but, but they should get this done. It, it shouldn't be that hard, but it looks pretty hard at the moment. So who is the president kind of instrumental to this? Is there something that he can do? And does it relate back to Charlottesville? I know some people in your party have asked for him to apologize, for example. I, I don't. I, Charlottesville, of course, in my view, and I think obviously for, for many people, the way that he handled that was disappointing. But I don't think that represents an impediment in the intermediate and longer term to getting tax reform done for, for the reasons I mentioned. And, and by the way, the, the president just needs to sign it. The, Mitch McConnell and Paul Ryan and his, their teams in the Congress need to put it forward. And I don't think the president is going to get hung up on a lot of the details, frankly. So if they put something on his desk that he can plausibly agree is tax reform and directionally helpful, there's a very high chance he's going to sign it. Um, so I, I, don't, I don't think he's even with the unfortunate approach that he took to Charlottesville and reaction to it is an impediment to tax reform getting done. Uh, and, and by the way, in terms of the other impediments, it always breaks down at this level. Everybody's for reducing the rates. Everybody's for 
cleaning up the exemptions, credits, deductions, and preferences until it comes to their exemption, credits, deduction, or preference. And then people head for the exits on an overall effort when their particular thing gets put on the chopping block. Should our listeners be disappointed that they haven't seen more meat on the bone when it comes to, to tax reform? A few months back, we got that first one-page document from the White House, really just you know 200 words, bullet points of what the White House was interested in. We got something from the big six before uh, lawmakers went on recess. Still a page long, a bit more detail. We learned the border-adjusted tax is no longer uh, on the table as they discuss a tax reform going forward here. But I keep thinking of this document that we got from the Treasury Department on financial regulation vis-a-vis the banks. Uh, the first chapter, we're told, in, in, in other documents like it that are going to be very detailed, very focused on what the administration uh, can do. Are, are, are listeners right to be disappointed that we haven't gotten documents like that on tax reform, on other issues that this White House has said that wants to take a look at? Yeah, you know, it is not the first 90 days. It is now almost September. So I suppose it's appropriate to say there should be some disappointment that it hasn't gone further and faster. But it's a once in a generation opportunity. So probably better to cut twice, excuse me, cut uh, once and measure twice. Mm -hmm. And and I think there's two basic or three basic forks in the road, but they include, are they willing, are Republicans willing to disregard or discount the CBO score on how much red ink uh, a bill is projected to create and say the CBO is wrong or the CBO is underestimating uh, the growth potential, and then are, are conservatives willing to sign up for some red ink as part of a tax bill? That remains to be seen. And then number two, how deeply are they willing to go on reform as opposed to just lowering rates? And the reform part is, in exchange for lowering rates, are you willing to clean up all of the mind-numbing complexity and all of those exemptions, preferences, and deductions that I mentioned earlier that, that from a conservative standpoint also represents in many cases allegations of crony capitalism, that government's picking winners and losers through these niche uh, provisions that benefit narrow interests as opposed to just a broader approach to lowering rates. You are Republican. You're heading up this, this business group uh, representing financial services companies. Let me ask you about the issue of bipartisanship in tax reform. There was a, a small olive branch in that statement I mentioned from the big six, these six leaders working on, on tax reform. They'd like to see Democrats come to the table uh, to work, work with them, or so they say. Uh, we don't see that happening. How do, you, how do you make that happen? When you, when you look back at when we did get comprehensive tax reform in the 80s, it was a bipartisan effort. Uh, Senator Bill Bradley came on to Bloomberg Television and told me uh, that it was hard. It involved a lot of negotiation, a lot of losing what one thought that he deserved to get. How do we get back to that point where you've got Republicans and Democrats back at the table talking about what is a signature issue here? That's very difficult to do, especially when the Republicans uh, technically don't need the Democrats to pass it, and you have such polarization and silo mentalities in politics today. So I think the idea of going back to a Reagan and O'Neill and having these statesmen and stateswomen come to the middle on something that's a political hot potato is probably unlikely. You may be able to get a small number of Democrats to join the efforts, particularly Democrats who are up for re-election in 2018 in red states like Indiana or Wyoming or some places like that if the bill is – you know, generally reasonable. But if it's an aggressive kind of pro-growth uh, Republican bill, you may see it be totally partisan. And uh, they, won't, they won't necessarily feel compelled to bring along Democrats because they don't have to. Uh, but there was a wave of business leaders, right, stepping down from advising the president last week. Carl Icahn, for example, also saying he was no longer advising Mr. Trump because of regulatory concerns. And we're hearing that this is because of the lack of tax reform and reform in general. How do you answer that? If I understood Mr. Icahn's concerns, he was involved in a bunch of business deals where there was at least informal concerns that he was in a conflicted position and he didn't want the headache, so he just quit. So I don't, I don't see that as 
an impediment or uh, any, any sort of road bump to the discussion or progress on tax reform. Again, keep in mind for the Republican Party, if you're a Republican leader, you've run around this country for a decade or more saying if we ever get in charge, we're going to do at least two things. We're going to repeal and replace Obamacare. Obviously, they didn't do that yet. But the second thing, which is very uh, important to, to the entire Republican Party and all the people who support it financially and otherwise, is they're going to fix and reform and streamline and improve the tax code so they can get the economy moving. David Gura in New York, Francine Lacqua in London. This is Bloomberg Surveillance on Bloomberg Radio. We're having a conversation with Tim Pallanti, the former governor of Minnesota, now the CEO of the Financial Services Roundtable Advocacy Group for uh, America's financial services industry in Washington, uh, D.C. And um, Governor Pallanti, let me ask you about the debate over the debt ceiling. We heard it uh, mentioned by the president uh, in speeches a couple of days ago. Uh, obviously, we're coming up to a point where we reach that X date, as it's called by the Treasury Department, when it will no longer be able to pay uh, its bills. The Treasury Department saying that's going to happen at the end of September. September or early October. Uh, we've been here before. Does it feel different this time because of the composition of the government? Um, it, not really. No, I would say it's uncomfortable for Republicans who control the Congress to have to deal with this issue because they don't like, at least rhetorically, the idea of debt. But they've already spent the money. And so when I was a kid, you used to say you can't dine and dash, which is you go eat the meal and then run out of the restaurant without paying. That's illegal. It's irresponsible. So you can't spend the money and then refuse to authorize the payment uh, for the money you've already committed to to spend. So they're going to approve it. It's going to be ugly. It'll be uncomfortable. There'll be a lot of squirming. But I think there's, a, as Mitch McConnell or somebody said the other day, almost 0% chance they're actually going to default. Uh, looking at the, the president's rhetoric surrounding the, the debt ceiling, surrounding the prospects for a government to shut down, and, and, and I wonder uh, what, what you might say to him about the gravity of that. When, when the government shuts down, it is uh, at a very basic level a nuisance for, for, for people. Uh, it certainly has effects for those who work within government and who rely on the government for, for services. What would you say to him about the gravity of, of seeing that happen? Well, I would distinguish between defaulting on the debt and a government shutdown. Both are negative developments, obviously. But I was the first time governor in 150 years or so of a Minnesota history that had a government shutdown for a couple weeks over a budget battle. And it it was certainly not uh, helpful to the people who are working or rely on those services. But it also was something we were able to survive. So you don't want the U.S. to default on its payments. You don't want the government to shut down. But those are two at least uh, somewhat different things. And we should separate the discussion. Right, but Governor, when you look at the shutdown of the, the possible, you know, the possible shutdown of the U.S., what kind of indication does it give to the rest of the world of how the U.S. is acting? If you're a foreign direct investor, why go into America now? Well, first of all, relative to the rest of the world, America is still incredibly successful, stable, and desirable. So as you think about that analysis, you got to think about it in relative terms. And number two, we've had brief shutdowns in the past, and you know, most people won't even remember that they occurred. Right. But at the same time, I mean, sure, Europe is, hasn't been as stable as the U.S. for a long time, but actually growth is better here. So, again, if I'm a foreign direct investor, what's the attractiveness of being in America at the moment where it seems that the president sometimes talks out of hand? Yeah. Well, again, I, I would say I'm not arguing for a shutdown. Don't get me wrong. I don't want to leave that impression. It would be negative for all the reasons that you're suggesting. I'm just not I'm saying it's not as apocalyptic if it's brief and short as it, you know some would suggest. 
Uh, very quickly, Go sir. Ahead, how, how? Sorry, um, Governor. What is the one thing that the Trump administration can do in the next six weeks to make sure that it gives a strong message to investors around the world that they mean business? I think the best thing that could happen, we touched on it earlier, would be for this Congress and this White House to work together in a crisp, uh, hopefully productive way between now and the end of the calendar year, although if it spills into next year, that's better than nothing, and get comprehensive tax reform done that's pro-job, pro-investment, and it you know sends the message we're serious about moving this GDP level from anemic to something better. Just looking at uh, Twitter now, as I'm wont to do here, as we have a president who, li- who likes to tweet, and he says, oh, it, this is going to be a two-part or maybe a three-part tweet, but the first the first uh, tweet he's fired off this morning, he says, I requested that Mitch McConnell and Paul Ryan tie the debt ceiling legislation into the popular VA bill, uh, which just passed, and then there's a, an ellipses, dot, 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 but the indicating here that would be uh, something that would make it be approved easily. Where do you stand? Where does the Financial Services Roundtable stand on the the, uh, the prospect of a clean debt ceiling raise? Is this something that you think should be kept separate from, from other issues? We, we think, and our members believe strongly, we, you don't mess with the debt ceiling, authorize it. And if you've got to do things to increase the likelihood that you're going to get votes to authorize it, great. But, you know, clean would be, I think, the wise way to go because then it could be potentially bipartisan and you wouldn't get, uh, you know, people either voting for or against it for ride-along reasons. Obviously, the president is saying let's attach it to something that's very popular and that people would support, which is support for veterans, men and women in the military, and that might increase the chances of getting votes for it. So uh, that would be perhaps something that would draw some votes and maybe increase the likelihood of of it passing. But it has to pass. I believe it will pass, uh, and, and clean would be fine, too. Governor Plante, really appreciate the time this morning. Thank you very much for coming in, as I said, to our Bloomberg 991 studios there in Washington, D.C., uh, Governor Tim Pawlenty, former governor of the state of Minnesota, now CEO of the Financial Services uh, Roundtable. That's an advocacy group for financial services companies, again, based in Washington, uh, D.C. Great to speak with him about uh, a host of issues uh, facing lawmakers when they get back to Washington in early September, uh, obviously chief among them, raising the debt ceiling, as we've been talking about, and uh, dealing with government funding uh, as well. Both of those deadlines rapidly uh, approaching. And uh, Fran, as you mentioned, we've heard uh, a lot from the president on these uh, two issues in particular here over these last uh, few days. The president making a trip through the western uh, U.S. He spoke uh, on the border in Yuma, Arizona, then moved up to Phoenix to deliver a speech at a rally uh, on Tuesday night. Uh, he was in Reno, Nevada yesterday uh, to address uh, the American Legion. Uh, two very different speeches, as uh, Governor Tim Pawlenty was, uh, was highlighting for us, uh, the one that he gave uh, in Phoenix and the one that he gave in Reno. This is Bloomberg Surveillance on Bloomberg Radio. David Gura in New York, Francine Lacqua in London. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. David Gura is at David Gura. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.